0: Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Jenny Colapitro, PwC's Vice Chair for Health Industries, working across pharmaceuticals, medtech, payers, and providers.
1: And I'm Igor Belakrnitsky, a principal with PwC Strategy End, where I get to help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. We are delighted to have as our guest today, Sierra Hawthorne. She's a director at Strategy End, and she works on using artificial intelligence to improve consumer engagement and health equity. Our topic today is trust. And we felt that it's an important topic to tackle and to tackle it today for a few reasons. One is just overall, this is near and dear to our hearts. As a firm, PwC, our mission is to build trust in society and solve important problems. So we're doing a lot of work around trust. Trust has been a critical part of the conversation around the COVID pandemic. And in fact, gaps in trust have been at the root of some of the disparities that we're seeing in health and health outcomes. And finally, what we're seeing is that actually coming out of the pandemic, the trust that the health consumers feel in the health system and the caregivers themselves, physicians and nurses feel in the health system, this trust has deteriorated and it's a big problem. we got to figure out how to address it. And there's no better person to help us have this conversation than Sierra. Sierra, welcome to the podcast. So Sierra, in preparing for this and preparing to talk to you about trust, I started thinking about how do we define trust? What does trust mean? How does it show up? And so I started thinking through, well, I trust you a lot. And so why do I trust you? Maybe that helps us get to some sort of a definition. And so some of the things I came up with in thinking about why I trust you is, first of all, we have A lot in common. We share some values and priorities, some of which we're going to talk about today. I know that we share these values and priorities because we've had lots of interactions together where you have demonstrated your values and priorities through words as well as actions. I also know that you're very capable and very reliable, and you have also consistently demonstrated this. So I trust you. Now, what that means and the way it manifests is, as I mentioned, you work on using AI, you build very complex models. And I don't necessarily understand those models, but I trust the outcomes that they produce because I know that you built them. And because, again, we share some basic fundamental principles of modeling that we both subscribe to. So the way I'm thinking about a trust is it's a willingness to behave a certain way, despite uncertainty, based on a shared history of interactions, values. And beliefs. So that's kind of my working definition of trust. But I'm curious, how do you think about trust?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for the trust in me. I'm honored to have it and I hope to continue to deserve it. So in looking at trust, there's a lot of different ways that we can think about it definitionally. There's a psychological definition of trust, an economic definition, a political philosophical definition of trust. And if you look at it from a philosophical perspective, whether you're looking at Hobbes or Locke and a lot of other political theorists, trust is pretty foundational in creating the norms of society that allow our political system to function. And obviously, for folks who've studied Hobbes and Locke, they'll probably pillory me for even having them in the same sentence. But in their own different ways, trust really makes a difference in creating that foundation for society to function. I think for the psychological definition of trust, which becomes really important, similar to what you mentioned you start to look at two things, which are vulnerability and expectation. So you'd mentioned you can expect that I'll behave a certain way. There's a certain predictability of my behavior. And you've gotten to a place where you can basically have confidence that my intentions are good and that we have a set of shared values and beliefs that are informing my behaviors. So when you think about that set of shared values and beliefs, That gets down to your trust in my underlying behavioral drivers. And that kind of gets into your expectation that the way I behave will be something that will be not harmful to you. So some of the kind of like working definitions around trust from a psychological perspective, I think the more widely accepted definition is really the psychological state that comprises the intention to accept vulnerability based on positive expectations of behavior and intention from another. So again, it's you trust my intention and you trust my behavior when you're willing to accept vulnerability as a result of that. So I think it's really important there because if you look at it purely from like an economic perspective, trust can be irrational, right? Because trusting in somebody makes you vulnerable to a potentially bad outcome. So you can't trust without having a positive expectation of somebody else's behavior. And if you don't have vulnerability, then you can't really have trust. So it's really interesting looking at kind of those different definitions. And again, the foundational role that trust plays not only in societal functioning, but also in kind of the individual and institutional relationships that we have that really have a feedback loop effect.
0: Thanks, Sierra. Those definitions make sense. You're taking me back when you're talking about lock and Hobbes. So before we get too philosophical, I want to take us from trust between individuals, which you outlined. To trust in institutions, which, as we all know, carries a real cost in healthcare. And we've seen firsthand what mistrust can cause. I'm sure our listeners have seen the stats of growing racial and ethnic mortality disparities and life expectancy. And in part, that's due to mistrust in our healthcare system, which has only further been exasperated with the pandemic in the last two years. Sierra, how do you think about trust in institutions? And what other impacts have we seen from the growing loss of trust? So I think this institutional distrust is partly a consequence of
2: eroding interpersonal trust that we see. And we can kind of take us back to the definitions that we talked about, where trust is a function of vulnerability and positive expectation. So especially as you look at groups of people who have been historically not well-served by institutions that expectation isn't necessarily there and for good reason. So for a lot of healthcare institutions, historically, there has been a lot of exclusion for communities of color and communities who have other socioeconomic drivers of marginalization. There's also a lot of other correlating factors in terms of distrust in other institutions that have to do with the medical establishment that I think communities of color and other socially marginalized groups have come to distrust. But a lot of that distrust can have roots both in access to information about new efforts underway where expectations can be more positive, but then also historical memory of interactions that have not been so positive. So when thinking about individuals and communities who have not been historically well served, we think about racial and ethnic minorities. We think about individuals living in rural communities. We think about people living with disabilities. Women, folks who are LGBTQI-affiliated, and people who are overweight or obese, all of whom have different ways of potentially having a fraught relationship with medical providers. From a historical standpoint, many of us are familiar with the Tuskegee experiment in Alabama that began in 1932 and extended to 1972, in which about 400 Black men who were diagnosed with syphilis were promised free medical care in exchange for enrolling in the study, were basically prevented from... Knowing about their disease or accessing treatment, resulting in about 128 indirect and direct deaths from syphilis and related complications, as well as several cases that had been spread to their partners and congenitally to children throughout that time period. And essentially wasn't stopped until it was leaked to the press in the early 1970s. So that's a pretty stark example, one that's oftentimes brought up in bioethics courses in describing the importance of human subjects informed consent about ability to withdraw from study and understanding of exactly what rights human subjects have in participating in research. But there are other examples today that indicate very disparate quality of care, in addition to some of the health literacy informed health behaviors that drive health outcomes over time. A few examples of those disparities, whether those are disparities based on race or ethnicity, gender, LGBTQI affiliation, or rural versus urban status, or even being overweight or obese, which can make relationships with providers particularly fraught. There are some really powerful examples in the literature around maternal mortality, around pain management, around cancer survival. But if you look at the latter, for example, Black patients have lower survival rates than white patients for almost every leading type of cancer, whether that's colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and others. And partially that's driven by different stages of diagnosis, which is, of course, informed by access to screening services, as well as trust and comfort in using those screening services. So you do have that feedback loop with trust. But then you also see different stage-specific survival rates. So what that means is for Black and white patients, Black patients are pretty systematically dying at a higher rate, regardless of cancer stage, for most types of cancer. And these types of disparities are are pretty common as well once you start to look at American Indian populations. And for certain types of cancer, it's true for Latina populations as well, and for certain Asian and Pacific Islander subgroups. And for patients who are overweight or obese, Providers are more likely to recommend weight loss as a course of treatment, even when it has nothing to do with their diagnosed condition. And it can also influence provider perceptions of symptoms that can represent an orthopedic injury or earlier stages of cancer, which can obviously influence outcomes for the patient later on. So these are just a few examples. There are plenty of others that are systematically documented in the literature. And providers and payers and pharma life sciences companies and new entrants are starting to pay really close attention to this. And it's really exciting to see trends In quality reporting for NCQA HEDIS, for STAR measures, for HCAP scores, for things like NPS scores, all of these are starting to be more closely tracked and monitored and tied back to race, ethnicity, rural versus urban status, gender. Not so much for LGBTQI affiliation or for overweight and obesity status, but that could be interesting as well. And there's a lot of learning that we are going to get out of that closer attention and the feedback loop that will be informed by Insight. And beyond that learning, obviously, the obligation will be to act on those insights and to become more trustworthy for patients who are interacting with us. So, again, there's some very real expectations that have been developed and are informing those levels of trust that we have to pay attention to as we think about rebuilding trust or building it for the first time where it might not exist.
1: Sierra, we clearly have an obligation to address a lot of these issues, a lot of these disparities, a lot of these blind spots, and then own up, communicate how we're addressing them to start rebuilding the trust. And we'll talk about some of the potential solutions and levers here in a moment. But before we do that, you've sort of painted this picture of a low trust environment that creates these disparities. Can we envision a high trust environment where, in fact, The institutions have been able to rebuild and regain and re-earn the trust of the individuals and of the communities. What kinds of things would be possible if we were operating in a higher trust environment? What kinds of things could we do in an environment like that? For example, I know you work a lot with AI and machine learning. How could we use those kinds of technologies if indeed we were in a higher trust environment? What would be the potential there?
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I think there's a, what does it look like in an end state? And then obviously, how could we get there question? So first, if we were to think about what would it look like at the end, we start to see closing of health disparities in terms of health outcomes. So erased discrepancies in mortality rates, reduced burden of disease, better diagnosis rates for people who actually have diseases at the right time and starting to address the social determinants of health that inform health outcomes in the places where people live, work, and play. I think when you have trust, a lot of times we use that interchangeably with health literacy. It's a slightly different thing, but you start to be able to address things like vaccine hesitancy. You start to have people more comfortable with getting screenings at the right time in order to close some of those diagnosis discrepancies. They start to see people able to communicate accurate health information in terms of health promotion campaigns and healthy behaviors modeled and diffused across populations and being able to create health in a community setting much better when you have that shared trust. So that's really obviously where we'd love to get to. From a public health perspective, we all want to get there. I think the way we can get there, and I think there's definitely a role for data to play and a role for AI to play using that data. But we have to be able to create trustworthiness if we want to be able to address the question of trust. So again, if we think about the two foundational components of trust being vulnerability and positive expectations, then how do we demonstrate trustworthiness repeatedly so that those expectations of a good experience come to light enough times where people are comfortable being vulnerable with us and trusting information and trusting us with their health? So that trustworthiness, I think, is built up in a multitude of ways and hopefully we can dig a bit more into the role that data might play in that.
0: Yeah, Sierra, so let's do that. Let's dig a little deeper. Can you share with our audience what levers can we really pull to strengthen trust? What kinds of behaviors, technology, communications, ecosystem can really help us to engender that trust and get to that higher trust environment that you outlined?
2: Yeah, so I think there are several ways that we can build trust. And if you look at kind of building trust in communities, there are four different types of trust we might look at. One is contractual trust. So are you keeping promises? Are expectations clear? Do you make it clear that people can depend on each other within that agreement? Two is kind of communication trust. So being able to have clear communication that allows people to actually follow information and making sure that that information is distributed really transparently at the right time. There's competency trust. This becomes really complicated here because it's really about doing our job well. And so this is really complicated because there's historically a bit of expectancy bias based on people's historical experience. So if people have historically come to expect bad experiences... Their belief in a provider's ability to do their job well, for example, or their system's ability to address trust or real barriers in the community might be very low. So perceptions of competency might be much lower. But being able to demonstrate again and again that you're able to do their job well in terms of quality of care, in terms of brand awareness, in terms of that quality becomes really important. And then there's a fourth dimension, which is just caring. So being able to kind of show in words and actions that your interest in well-being in communities is real and that it's genuine, that's really important. There's a lot of times words that are shared, especially in the last few years around a commitment to health equity, but people are discerning. If those words are only words and they don't really correspond with genuine care you a know, genuine commitment, then I think there's some very clear lack of impact there. So when we look at caring, it seems really soft and squishy, but it's really a foundational part as well. And so a lot of our clients who are really looking to invest in health equity seriously are starting to think about, well, how do we have our care come across as genuine? And how do we know that it's genuine by connecting our resources with the area where they're going to have the most impact so that we can kind of see through all these different dimensions of care and trust that what we want to do is what we will ultimately be able to drive in the community.
1: Sierra, that's a fantastic point. And I'm just reflecting on the conversations we've been having with equity leaders at different health systems and their experience through the COVID pandemic and how they've been working on building trust. And one of the tools they have been using or one of the levers they have been pulling is representation. Mm -hmm. This notion that nothing about me without me. And if I want trust of certain communities that I serve Or if I want the trust of my own caregivers and physicians and nurses and other caregivers inside my institutions, they need to be somehow represented in my decision making bodies so that they can bring the right experiences to the table, the right perspectives. And it also is a way to show that we care that goes beyond words you know mm-hmm. it's expensive signaling to show that we have a senior executive representing a certain group and not just as a leader in equity and inclusion but also in other executive roles so this notion of representation seems to be a fairly effective one for many health organizations and so i'm curious just in general if you imagine a senior executive at a health organization who's trying to elevate trust both at the institutional level as well as at the individual level. So thinking about how does she make her institution more trustworthy and how does she make herself more worthy of trust? What is the one first step that you would suggest that this person make?
2: That's a great question. So I would say listening is a good first step because that starts to get more at that caring piece. So understanding what people want and need in order to build those bridges of trust. I think that listening can be done in multiple ways. We can listen through what we've started to see in terms of like patient advisory boards. We can look at listening in terms of really concentrated, qualitative research, ethnographic research, where we're accompanying different people through different types of care journeys and different community settings where health is created. Again, so maybe are they able to access food? If not, you know what is it like to try to get to the soup kitchen or go to the food pantry and be able to get something to eat? What is it like to get boomeranged between different settings to be able to get the type of primary and specialty care medication refills that are necessary to manage some of the complex, costly conditions that oftentimes plague certain groups and community disproportionately? So I think understanding that through an ethnographic research perspective, or what we call human-centered design research perspective, is really important. You can also use data for that. So you can use data to listen and to learn. So a lot of what we've built within some of the product development efforts that we've had internally within PDBC is the ability to bring together multiple different data sources, what we call a synthetic population, to infer a combination of personal values attitudes, and beliefs, in addition to social and environmental determinants of health in informing these certain types of care utilization behaviors and lifestyle behaviors that in turn inform health progression over time. So we can use types of techniques like that that don't violate patient privacy in terms of the types of data elements that we're pulling together while also getting a really robust view of what is potentially informing trust and informing behaviors So that combined with a qualitative view and it combined with more of the explicit patient advocacy view, you can get a good understanding of what is likely driving real life for folks as they try to manage their health on a day-to-day basis. So that's a long answer, but essentially, listen in a multitude of ways. And then this, I'm cheating a little bit of my answer because you asked for one thing, but I want to get back to your point around representation, which is to include representation authentically. And in a way that again reinforces that expectation of trustworthiness. And so, what that means is representation that isn't tokenism. And I think that's really important because, as you said, hiring people of color, hiring women, hiring people at different intersections that inform health progression over time and societal inclusion is really critical. But hiring has to be done in combination with empowerment, with actual budget, with teams and with strategic discretion to take on initiatives to increase the trustworthiness of an organization. So communities have to see that, not just a new addition to the board or a new addition to the executive team for that to be believable.
1: You can't see me, but I'm nodding vigorously and agreeing with you. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I know both Jennifer and I really enjoyed having you on.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a real privilege.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And as you said, listening is really important. So please continue listening to the podcast and we will continue working to be worthy of your trust and representing different perspectives. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health.